to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you turn there, just a couple of comments uh, before I read the text and before we turn our attention to the Word this morning. There are some uh, sermons, uh, some weeks that come easily with abundant clarity. And this was not one of those weeks. Um, I started uh, planning on, on preaching uh, our, on our identity as the light of the world. You are the light, or you are the light, children of light. And in studying that and beginning that, I was drawn to this passage in 2 Corinthians 6 and felt compelled to preach that instead. And so I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer that uh, this is a text-driven sermon more so than it is a title-driven sermon. So if I wanted to preach a sermon on that we are the temple of the living God, I would have gone probably to another passage, but by God's providence it led me here and, and it does, touch, uh, does address our identity as the temple of the living God, um, but it is uh, going to be largely a text-driven sermon instead of a title-driven sermon, if that makes any sense. Um, I would also uh, uh, say that uh, I, I don't know if I ever struggled so much uh, over a, a text as I have this past week, and uh, um, I don't know if I, uh, there's so much that I would like to say about these verses, and I, I could not and cannot say it all, and so I, I trust that what God has uh, placed before us this morning is what He would have us to hear. So I invite you to bow with me, if you would, as we Pray for God's anointing on His Word this morning. Lord God, as we come together, Lord, under the authority of Your Word, I pray that You give us ears to hear it and hearts to receive it. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would have hearts that receive it fruitfully and correctly that it might bear fruit of transformation and, and change as you would see fit for our good and for your glory. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would make me a faithful and a humble servant of your word this morning to say nothing less and nothing more than what you would have me to say. Lord, do your work in us and pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14 and reading through chapter 7, verse 1, which is, by the way, a, a very unfortunate chapter break. I don't know why they put that there. It really should not be there. Um, it's all one unit, um, but that's the text we'll read this morning. So the Apostle Paul says to the believers at the city of Corinth, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You may be seated. There is a river on the border between Michigan and northern Wisconsin, and it's called the Brule River, and it's a beautiful river with with crystal clear water, and it is a, from what I understand, a trout fisherman's dream. But there's another river in that region that is uh, not so clean and clear, and that is the Iron River, which is, at least in many places, muddy and thick with sediment of ore and clay. And at one point, these two rivers merge together. And at the point where they come together, you can see the clear water of the Brule flowing alongside the muddy water of the Iron River. But then not far downstream from that, that distinction is completely gone. The muddy water of the Iron River pollutes the clean water of the Brule, and the whole stream just flows brown. So often, I think, as Christians, this is what happens to us. As we live in the world, we become corrupted and polluted by the muddy waters of our culture. And it is our challenge as Christians to remain clean even as we come into contact with those muddy waters. This is the challenge that Paul addresses in our text this morning. How how do we live as God's holy people in a sinful and corrupted land? And if we are going to hear Paul's words correctly this morning, we have to first understand the context into which he was writing, the, the background to this letter to the Corinthian believers. The city of Corinth was an important city with a long history of significance. It was located, as you can see on the map, uh, in the southern part of Greece on a narrow strip of land uh, connecting the Greek mainland to the Peloponnese region. And because of its location, it was a major center for trade and travel by both land and seas. Kind of everything sort of came together in Corinth. And it was, uh, in Paul's day, the chief city of Greece, both commercially and politically. It was a very, very wealthy city with a thriving population of about 700,000 people. The prosperity of the city manifested itself in all kinds of magnificent buildings and facilities, including shops and gymnasiums and beautiful fountains and monuments and and, uh, athletic fields and parks and even a grand theater and a library. And if we could somehow transport ourselves into the city of Corinth in Paul's day and just spend a little bit of time walking down the streets and, 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 and exploring the city a little bit, uh, a few things I think would stand out. And, and again, there's a lot that I could say about, about the city of Corinth, but I, I, highlight, I want to highlight just a, a few things that I think are relevant uh, for our text this morning and for the message that God has for us. So if we had walk the streets of, of Corinth and spend a little time, if we go back to Paul's day, we would notice its diversity. 
It was a melting pot kind of a city with, with sort of this cosmopolitan feel. And we would encounter all people from all kinds of ethnic and religious backgrounds. And with this diversity came a sort of progressivism. It was a city of people who, who lived for the future and who embraced new ideas. People who were intellectually alert, as one historian said, and on the cutting edge of Greek philosophy. And people who were quick to follow the prevailing wisdom and teaching of the age. We would also notice, if we spent any time in the city, it's paganism. It's idol worship. With religious diversity came a whole assortment of pagan temples. There were at least 12 temples in the city of Corinth in Paul's day, and these, these temples would have small dining rooms in them where people could gather with, with their friends to, to share a meal together in dedication to the God of that temple. In the northern part of the city, there was a temple of the God of healing. In the middle of the city stood the famous temple of Apollo, the remains of which are still seen today. And south of the city stood an imposing mountain just under 2,000 feet tall called Acro-Corinth, which you can see in the background of this picture. And at the top of that mountain, that, that, sort of that flat area at the top, at the top of, uh, of Acro-Corinth was a temple uh, of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love. And that brings us then to the last thing I want to mention this morning in terms of background and context for the city of Corinth, and that is that it was a city of deep immorality. Corinth has been called by some the, the ancient city of hedonism and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. According to one historian, the temple of Aphrodite was uh, at one time served by more than a thousand temple prostitutes. And so it drew people from all across the Mediterranean. In fact, this is a, was one of the major contributors to the wealth of the city. People would come and they would, they would uh, spend time with these temple prostitutes and, and it brought wealth into the city. And this legacy of immorality continued into Paul's day. In fact, the city had developed such a reputation for sexual immorality that in the broader Greco-Roman world, prostitutes were called Corinthian girls. And to engage in sexual immorality was, had, had a term coined which was simply to Corinthianize. This is the environment in which the Corinthian Christians lived. And we, we get the picture that many of them were being influenced by the pagan practices and the philosophies of the city and trying to, to blend these, these pagan influences with their own beliefs to produce a more progressive brand of Christianity. And it's against this backdrop that Paul writes to the Corinthians. And we see in Paul's words this morning really two main things that I want to focus on. Uh, a call, and then the foundation underneath that call. And really, the, almost the entire message will be focused on the call, and then just a little bit on the foundation underneath it. So we see first the, the strong call for separation. Uh, Paul says in verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And then he echoes this call in verse 17 by quoting Isaiah 52 verse 11, kind of loosely quoting it, paraphrasing it a little bit, but, but clearly referencing Isaiah 52 verse 11. He says, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no one clean thing and I will receive you. 
And then he follows this with a third appeal in chapter 7, verse 1, saying, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And so these three statements at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end of this, this, uh, this textual unit, they, they all are, are different expressions saying the same, basically the same thing, the same call for separation. So Paul is calling believers to be distinct from the unbelieving world. He's calling us to a life of holiness in a sinful and corrupted land. The command not to be yoked together with unbelievers which is one of the more familiar, perhaps one of the most familiar verses in 2 Corinthians. The command is drawn from Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, where God said to his people, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. So, so Paul is using that as sort of a, now a, the, the imagery of being yoked together, is using that as a, as a metaphor and applying it to the believers in Corinth and to us today as well. And the idea back in Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, is that, is that the two animals are fundamentally different breeds. And so uh, they, they must not, uh, so here's a, a picture, which is, I'm pretty sure, photoshopped. I don't think it's an actual picture. But you get the idea. Here's two fundamentally different breeds of animals. They must not be yoked together, which is a, a yoke was a wooden harness that the, the two of them would, that would go over the, you know, would bind both of them together. They must not be harnessed together to pull the same plow, to accomplish the same task, the same purpose, the same goal. And Paul applies this imagery to believers. And the idea that Paul is driving at is that as believers, we are fundamentally different than unbelievers, that we are two of two entirely different and opposing kingdoms. We are like oil and water, like night and day, like death and life. This is the point that Paul makes in his five rhetorical questions that follow his initial command in verse 14. So he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Then he follows that with this string of rhetorical questions where he says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which was another name for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And the answer to all of these questions is a resounding nothing or none. That there, there can be no fellowship between light and darkness. There is no harmony between Christ and Satan. There is no agreement between the temple of God and idols. And so too, Paul says, there can be no joining of believers with unbelievers. But the big question, of course, and the thing that caused so much wrestling for me this past week is what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we know from other parts of Paul's letters and the rest of Scripture in general that Paul is not calling for a complete separation from unbelievers altogether. We could not then fulfill the commission that Jesus has given to go and make disciples of all nations, could we? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that we are not to disassociate from unbelievers in the world because he says that would mean leaving the world altogether. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he instructs believing husbands to remain married to unbelieving wives and believing wives to remain married to unbelieving husbands. 
And Jesus himself, when praying for his disciples in John 17, said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. That's where we get that language of being in the world, but not of the world. And so, when Paul calls us not to be yoked together with unbelievers, he is not calling for a wholesale separation from the unbelieving world. He's not calling us to pack our bags and to move to some cave up in the mountains. He's not calling us to move out of our neighborhoods or to cancel our checking accounts and our mutual funds because that would bring us into some association with unbelievers. That's not what Paul is calling us to do. But again, that brings us back to the question, what what then is he calling us to do? And as I wrestled with that question, I came up with this principle. So here's 50 pages of notes boiled down into a single statement. And I do not at all pretend to say that this captures it all. There's a lot of different ways this applies to different situations, but I do think that it, it serves as a helpful guide to get at the heart of what I think Paul is driving at in this text. So here's the principle, that we must not form any kind of partnership or association that would compromise our allegiance to and worship of the only true and living God, or, our, or that would compromise our integrity and distinctiveness in the pursuit of Christian holiness. I think that is at the heart of what Paul is driving at in his call for separation. It is instructive that Paul quotes in this context Isaiah 52 verse 11 in his call for separation. In Isaiah 52, uh, if, we, uh, if we would turn there, I don't, you don't have to because I'll show it to you in just a minute. But the context of Isaiah 52 is that God is calling his people to return to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon. And he calls for a dramatic and a complete separation from all of Babylon's idolatry. As he calls his people home and back to Jerusalem, he says, you've got to leave all of that behind. Leave it behind and have no association, have, have no contact even with any of the idolatry of Babylon. This is what Isaiah 52 verse 11 says. God says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Don't even touch anything. Come out from it and purify yourselves, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. So God was calling them to to, to bring back the articles of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away into Babylon. He says, when you do that, don't touch anything else. Don't even touch those pagan objects of worship. Carry out the things devoted to me and bring them back into my land. And Paul applies these words to us as Christians. We are to separate ourselves from all of the paganism and all of the idolatry of the world in which we live. We are to remain uncompromising in our Christian faith and our call to holiness. One old-time preacher He used the analogy of a ship. And he said that believers are to be in the world, but not of the world, as a ship is to be in the water, but the water is not to be in the ship. And in the end, it's really a matter of influence, isn't it? Are you influencing the world, or is the world influencing you? Are you shining like stars in the darkness as the light, or are you allowing the darkness to diminish your light? Are you a ship of Christian influence in the water of the world or are you allowing the water of the world into your ship? 
I think the commentator F.F. Bruce hit the mark in capturing what Paul means by being yoked together with unbelievers. He says this. He says, to be yoked with unbelievers is to be of one heart and mind with them, co-opted by the values that guide them, seduced by their commitments to various gods and lords, conforms to a view of things which dismiss dismisses absolute truth and moral purity. And so in calling for separation, Paul calls us to maintain our distinctiveness. He calls us to embrace the fact that believers are fundamentally different than unbelievers. And we, we think differently, we behave differently, we operate under a different system of values and loyalties and allegiances and standards. We are, are driven by the otherworldly kingdom of God and its demand for holiness. And so when the masses bow to the gods of health and wealth and entertainment and pleasure, we refuse to bow with them. And when the crowds conform to the policies and agendas and patterns of this dark world, we, we boldly stand out as children of light. And this, of course, has all sorts of implications. For the Corinthian Christians, it was, it, it meant, don't, you know, don't go into the pagan temples. Don't participate in the pagan customs. Don't indulge yourself with the temple prostitutes. But beyond that, it meant, don't let your thinking be swayed by the street philosophers. Don't compromise your Christian faith by adapting it to the prevailing and progressive wisdom of the day. And it really, it has different applications for us, but it means nothing less than that for us today. It means don't buy into the worldviews and the philosophies that our unbelieving culture promotes. It means at time condemning what the world celebrates and celebrating what the world condemns. It means holding firm to the biblical teaching on issues like gender and sexuality and abortion while the rest of the world promotes what God forbids. And especially as we, as a synod, as a denomination, are wrestling with these issues, it is particularly relevant this week. It means at times refusing to watch the same things that our unbelieving friends watch. It means denying ourselves in a culture driven by self-worship. And it means living by faith in a world that knows only to walk by sight. You see, when, when Paul calls for a, a separation, he's calling us to a life of uncompromising commitment to the authority of God's word and the pursuit of holiness in all areas of life. To not compromise, not let the water of the world into the ship. In 1983, a plane departed from Anchorage, Alaska, and it was bound for Seoul, Korea on a direct flight. But unknown to the crew, the, uh, there, there was a one-and-a-half-degree routing error in the navigation system. A one, just a, a very minor, minuscule error, one-and-a-half degrees off. 
And at the point of, de- of departure, that mistake was unnoticeable. A hundred miles into the flight, that, that little mistake uh, was so small, that little deviation was so small that it was really undetectable. But as the flight progressed, as more and more miles were added to the flight, the plane grew increasingly off course until it eventually strayed into Soviet airspace where the plane was quickly shot down and all the passengers on board were killed. And it all began with just a small little routing error. It was off by just a little. But that minor deviation from the beginning brought the plane far off course down the road, and it came with devastating consequences. And so too with what may appear to be minor deviations from the instruction of God's Word and minor compromises with the darkness of the world, what begins as a minor deviation may have eternally damaging consequences. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. So that is the strong call that Paul gives in this text. But there's something else in this text as well. And that is there is a deep foundation of grace underneath the call. The foundation of grace is our identity in Christ. And Paul reveals this identity in verse 16 where he says, For we are the temple of the living God. This is the foundation of our call to a life of separation and holiness. We are called to be separate because of who we are in Christ. We are the temple of the living God. Now, if you remember under the old covenant, that the temple was the place where God dwelled in all his glory and all of his holiness. And the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ in the new covenant is that he has made us to be the temple of God. Paul said this is true of us corporately as a a body of believers. He said in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, Do you not know that you yourselves, that you yourselves corporately as the body of Christ are God's holy temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God's temple is sacred, he says, and you together, you together as the body of Christ, as a body of believers corporately, you are that temple. But Paul also says this is true of us individually. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies, your individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. So as individual believers and as the corporate church, we are the temple of the living God. This is who we are in Christ. We are those in whom and among whom the God of all glory and all holiness dwells. And what that means by necessity is that we have been made clean because a holy God cannot mingle with sin. And so if we are the temple of the living God, then we are those who have been made clean. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We've been washed clean through his precious blood. 
As the writer of Hebrews said, by his one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love that verse. By his one sacrifice, once and for all, all sufficient, one sacrifice, he has made perfect. He has made perfect already those who are in the process of being made holy. After a week of visitors in our home last week, we spent the next day giving the whole house a thorough cleaning. Although Lori would probably be quick to say that she mostly gave the whole house a thorough cleaning. I was doing other stuff, but it was helping. <laughs> Just want to be fair. So we had, this, we had visitors the next day, cleaning day. All day, give the whole house a thorough cleaning. Lori said at the end of the day, I don't think the house has ever been so clean. And with the house all clean again, there was this renewed incentive to keep it that way. Because how foolish it would be after the house is all clean to go through it with muddy shoes or to mess everything up again and to you know, have garbage and dirty clothes strewn about the floors. Paul says, we are a house that has been made clean. We are the dwelling place of the Holy One. We are the temple of the living God. And God, is, God has gone to, to great, to great lengths to make us who we are in Christ, to make us a body, to make us a, a temple by which He and all of His holiness dwells. He's gone to great lengths to do that. Why would we want to bring any of the world's filth into what God has made clean? Let us instead bring our holiness to completion, as Paul says. And this is what Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1. As he concludes this text, he says, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And that word perfecting is a translation of the Greek word epitaleo, which means to complete or, or to bring to a successful finish. And so Paul says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, bringing to a successful finish the holiness that God has produced in us out of reverence for him. Let us continue to be who God made us to be. Let us remain uncorrupted by the evil influences of the world. Let us pursue holiness and bring it to its successful finish. Let us live as the temple of the living God, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. As we conclude this morning, I want to share with you these words of Charles Spurgeon commenting on our call to be separate from the world. Spurgeon said this, he said, Remember, O Christian, that you are a son of the King of Kings. Remember, O Christian, that you are a son of the King of Kings. Keep yourself unstained by the world. Soil not the fingers which are soon to sweep celestial strings. Fill not the eyes with lust which are soon to see the King in all his beauty. Let not these feet be defiled in miry places which are soon to walk the golden streets. 
and then rise my soul and soar away above the thoughtless crowd, above the pleasures of the day and the splendors of the proud, up where eternal beauties bloom and pleasures all divine, where wealth that never can consume and endless glories shine. Friends, in Christ we are the temple of the living God. Let us not, let us not make his house unclean, but pursue holiness to his glory. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, we praise you as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer. Give us a renewed wonder over our identity in Christ, which you have accomplished through our cleansing through his blood to make us to be the temple of the living God. Individual bodies in a corporate church in whom and among whom you dwell in all of your glory and all of your holiness. Astound us, O Lord, with that identity. And I pray, O Lord, that you would also receive our repentance and our confession as we bring them silently before your throne for the ways, O oh Lord, that we have allowed the water of the world into our ship, for the ways that are, instead of shining brightly, the light within us, we've allowed that light to be diminished by the darkness of our culture. Lord, search our hearts, show us the ways that we have compromised, the ways that we have let the muddy waters corrupt the clean water you've called us to be and hear our prayers of repentance and confession this morning. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And therefore, since we have these rich and deep promises of God, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything 
that contaminates body and spirit, bringing to completion holiness out of reverence for God. Oh Lord, we praise you for the work of cleansing that you have accomplished in us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we commit ourselves to you, O oh Lord, to live out our identity as the temple of the living God, to be who you've made us to be, to pursue holiness in a sinful and corrupted land. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.